0: It was a large, old reading room, in the basement of an old Victorian building, in an old village, in old New England. The room was a sea of dusty old wingback chairs, grouped in twos, facing round small tables. One could not walk a straight line from the double doors to the fireplace at the far end. A dozen people could be in the room and not see anyone else but the person opposite. This was the hometown of an obscure writer of short, weird fiction from the turn of the last century, and I thought these stories from original manuscripts would be a crowning addition to my thesis on transitional short fiction of the late 19th and early 20th century. It was to be my grand opus, and would cement my position as the rising star of the English department. But time was short. It had taken me hours to navigate the narrow country roads to get here. Why did these types of writers always live in such backwater places? I arrived in time to stick my foot in the door, just as the old maid librarian was closing it. After a few minutes of very picturesque begging and pleading, she showed me to the archive room, which was next to the reading room, and left, telling me to lock the door on my way out. After an hour of collecting material, I dragged it to the empty reading room and sat down to my study. I was tired and must have fallen asleep because suddenly I was shocked awake by a deep voice which seemed to come from a wingback chair on the other side of the room. These stories are much more interesting when they are heard rather than read, it said. Listen, and you'll hear what I mean. Here is a famous story with relevance for today. The Mask of the Red Death by Edgar Allan Poe The Red Death had long devastated the country. No pestilence had ever been so fatal or so hideous. Blood was its avatar and its seal, the redness and the horror of blood. There were sharp pains and sudden dizziness, and then profuse bleeding at the pores with dissolution. The scarlet stains upon the body, and especially upon the face of the victim, were the pest band which shut him out from the aid and from the sympathy of his fellow man. And the whole seizure, progress, and termination of the disease were the incidents of half an hour. But the Prince Prospero was happy and dauntless and was sagacious. When his dominions were half depopulated, he summoned to his presence a thousand hale and light-hearted friends from among the knights and dames of his court, and with these retired to the deep seclusion of one of his castellated abbeys. This was an extensive and magnificent structure, the creation of the Prince's own eccentric yet august taste. A strong and lofty wall girded it in. This wall had gates of iron. The courtiers, having entered, brought furnaces and massy hammers and welded the bolts. They resolved to leave means neither of ingress or egress to the sudden impulses of despair from without or of frenzy from within. The abbey was amply provisioned. With such precautions, the courtiers might bid defiance to contagion. The external world could take care of itself. In the meantime, it was folly to grieve or to think. The prince had provided all the appliances of pleasure. There were buffoons. There were improvisori. There were ballet dancers. There were musicians. There were cards. There were beauty. And there was wine. All these and security were within. Without was the red death. It was toward the close of the fifth or sixth month of his seclusion, and while the pestilence raged most furiously abroad, that the Prince Prospero entertained his thousand friends at a mass ball of the most unusual magnificence. It was a voluptuous scene, that masquerade. But first, let me tell of the rooms in which it was held. There were seven, an imperial suite. In many palaces, however, such suites form a long and straight vista, while the folding doors slide back nearly to the walls on either hand, so that the view of the whole extent is scarcely impeded. Here the case was very different, as might have been expected from the Duke's love of the bazaar. The apartments were so irregularly disposed that the vision encompassed but little more than one at a time. There was a sharp turn at every 20 or 30 yards, and at each turn a novel effect. To the right and left, in the middle of each wall, a tall and narrow Gothic window looked out upon a closed corridor which pursued the windings of the suite. These windows were of stained glass, whose color varied in accordance with the prevailing hue of the decorations of the chamber into which it opened. That at the eastern extremity was hung, for example, in blue, and vividly blue were its windows. The second chamber was purple in its ornaments and tapestries, and here the panes were purple. The third was green throughout, so were the casements. The fourth was furnished and lighted with orange, the fifth with white, the sixth with violet. The seventh apartment was closely shrouded in black velvet tapestries that hung all over the ceiling and down the walls, falling in heavy folds upon a carpet of the same material and hue but in this chamber only the color of the windows failed to correspond with the decorations the panes here were scarlet a deep blood color now in no one of these seven apartments was there any lamp or candelabrum amid the confusion of golden ornaments that lie scattered to and fro or depended from the roof there was no light of any kind emanating from lamp or candle within the suite of chambers But in the corridors that followed the suite, there stood opposite to each window a heavy tripod, bearing a brazier of fire that projected its rays through the tinted glass and so glaringly illumined the room, and thus were produced a multitude of gaudy and fantastic appearances. But in the western, or black chamber, The effect of the firelight that streamed upon the dark hangings through the blood-tinted panes was ghastly in the extreme, and produced so wild a look upon the countenance of those who entered that there were few of the company bold enough to set foot within its precincts at all. It was in this apartment also that there stood against the western wall a gigantic clock of ebony. Its pendulum swung to and fro with a dull, heavy, monotonous clang, and when its minute hand made the circuit of the face, and the hour was to be stricken, there came forth from the brazen lungs of the clock a sound which was clear, and loud, and deep, and exceedingly musical." but of so peculiar a note and emphasis that, at each lapse of an hour, the musicians in the orchestra were constrained to pause momentarily in their performance to hearken to the sound. And thus the waltzers perforce ceased their evolutions, and there was a brief disconcert of the whole gay company. And while the chimes of the clock yet rang, it was observed that the giddiest grew pale, and that the more aged and sedate passed their hands over their brows as if in confused reverie or meditation. But when the echoes had fully ceased, a light laughter at once pervaded the assembly. The musicians looked at each other and smiled as if at their own nervousness and folly, and made whispering vows each to the other that the next chiming of the clock would produce in them no similar emotion. And then, after the lapse of sixty minutes, which embraced 3,600 seconds of the time that flies, there came yet another chiming of the clock, and then were the same disconcert and tremulousness and meditation as before. But in spite of these things, it was a gay and magnificent revel. The tastes of the Duke were peculiar. He had a fine eye for color and effects. He disregarded the decor of mirror fashion. His plans were bold and fiery, and his conceptions glowed with barbaric luster. There are some who would have thought him mad. His followers felt that he was not. It was necessary to hear and see and touch him, to be sure that he was not. He had directed, in great part, the movable embellishments of the seven chambers upon occasion of this great fete and it was his own guiding taste which had given character to the costume of the masqueraders. Be sure they were grotesque. There were much glare and glitter and piquancy and phantasm, much of which has since been seen in Hernani. There were arabesque figures with unsuited limbs and appointments. There were delirious fantasies such as the madman fashions. And there was much of the beautiful, much of the wanton, much of the bizarre. Something of the terrible, and not a little of that which might have excited disgust. To and fro in the seven chambers there stalked, in fact, a multitude of dreams. And these, the dreams, withered in and about, taking hue from the rooms, and causing the wild music of the orchestra to seem as the echo of their steps. And anon there strikes the ebony clock, which stands in the hall of the velvet. And then, momentarily, all is still, all is silent, save the voice of the clock. The dreams are stiff-frozen as they stand, but the echoes of the chimes die away. They have endured but an instant, and a light, half-subdued laughter floats after them as they depart. And now again the music swells, and the dreams live and ride to and fro more merrily than ever taking hue from the many tinted windows through which stream the rays from the tripods. But to the chamber which lies most westerly of the seven, there are now none of the maskers who venture. The night is waning away, and there flows a ruddier light through the blood-colored panes, and the blackness of the sable drapery appalls. And to him whose foot falls upon the sable carpet, there comes from the near clock of ebony a muffled peal, more solemnly emphatic than any which reaches their ears, who indulge in the more remote gaieties of the other apartments. But these other apartments were densely crowded, and in them beat feverishly the heart of life. And the revel went whirlingly on until at length was sounded the twelfth hour upon the clock, And then the music ceased, as I have told, and the evolutions of the waltzers were quieted, and there was an uneasy cessation of all things as before. But now there were twelve strokes to be sounded by the bell of the clock, and thus it happened. Perhaps that more of thought crept with more of time into the meditations of the thoughtful among those who reveled. And thus again it happened, perhaps, that before the last echoes of the last chime had utterly sunk into silence, there were many individuals in the crowd who had found leisure to become aware of the presence of a masked figure, which had arrested the attention of no single individual before. And the rumor of this new presence having spread itself whisperily around, there arose at length from the whole company a buzz. A murmur expressive at first of disappropriation and surprise, and finally, of terror, of horror, and of disgust. In an assembly of phantasms such as I have painted, it may well be supposed that no ordinary appearance would have excited such sensation. In truth, the masquerade license of the night was nearly unlimited. But the figure in question had out-heralded Herod, and gone beyond the bounds of even the prince's indefinite decorum. There were cords in the heart of the most reckless which cannot be touched without emotion. Even with the utterly lost to whom life and death are equally jests, there are matters of which no jest can be properly made. The whole company, indeed, seemed now deeply to feel that in the costume and bearing of the stranger neither wit nor propriety existed. The figure was tall and gaunt and shrouded from head to foot in the habiliments of the grave. The mask which concealed the vestige was made so nearly to resemble the countenance of a stiffened corpse that the closest scrutiny must have had difficulty in detecting the cheek. And yet all this might have endured, if not approved, by the mad revelers about. But the mummer had gone so far as to assume the type of the Red Death. His vestige was dabbled in blood, and his broad brow with all the features of the face was besprinkled with the scarlet horror. When the eyes of the Prince Prospero fell upon this spectral image, which with a slow and solemn movement, as if more fully to sustain its role, stalked to and fro among the waltzers. He was seen to be convulsed in the first moment with a strong shudder, either of terror or distaste, but in the next his brow reddened with rage. "'Who dares!' he demanded hoarsely of the group that stood around him. "'Who dares thus to make mockery of our woes?' uncase the varlet so that we may know who we have to hang tomorrow at sunrise from the battlements will no one stir at my bidding stop him and strip him i say of those reddened vestiges of sacrilege it was in the eastern or blue chamber in which stood prince prospero as he uttered the words they rang through the seven rooms loudly and clearly for the prince was a bold and robust man and the music had become hushed at the waving of his hand. It was in the blue room where stood the prince, with a group of pale courtiers at his side. At first, as he spoke, there was a slight rustling movement of this group in the direction of the intruder, who at the moment was also near at hand, and now with deliberate and stately step made closer approach to the speaker, But from a certain nameless awe with which the mad assumptions of the mummer had inspired the whole party, there were found none who put forth hand to seize him. So that unimpeded, he passed within a yard of the prince's person, and while the vast assembly, as if with one impulse, shrank from the center of the rooms to the walls, he made his way uninterruptedly, but with the same solemn and measured step which had distinguished him from the first. Through the blue chamber, to the purple, through the purple, to the green, through the green, to the orange, through this again, to the white, and even thence to the violet, ere a decided movement had been made to arrest him. It was then, however, that the Prince Prospero, maddening with rage and the shame of his own momentary cowardice rushed hurriedly through the six chambers, while none followed him on account of a deadly terror that had seized upon all. He bore aloft a drawn dagger, and had approached in rapid impetuity to within three or four feet of the retreating figure, and when the latter, having attained the extremity of the violet apartment, turned suddenly around and confronted his pursuer. There was a sharp cry, and the dagger dropped gleamingly upon the sable carpet upon which instantly afterwards fell prostrate in death the Prince Prospero. Then summoning the wild courage of despair, a throng of revelers at once threw themselves into the black apartment, and seizing the mummer, whose tall figure stood erect and motionless within the shadow of the ebony clock, gasp in unutterable horror at finding the grave sermons and corpse-like mask which they had handled so violent a rudeness, untenanted by any tangible form. And now was acknowledged the presence of the Red Death. He had come like a thief in the night, and one by one dropped the revelers in the blood bedewed halls of their revel, and died each in the despairing posture of his fall and the life of the ebony clock went out with that of the last of the gay, and the flames of the tripods expired, and darkness and decay and the red death held illimitable dominion over all. The End I must have fallen asleep again. The next thing I remember was the librarian's voice from the hall outside. That damn young fool didn't lock the door, it said. Times aren't what they used to be. I ducked low and crept out when she wasn't looking. The whole drive back, all I could think about were those marvelous stories. Such marvelous stories.